Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. My name's Nick. I have the privilege of continuing our Hebrews series. Uh, we are in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written by someone that we don't know. He didn't clarify who he was. Um, but, what's that? Hey, look, if you're going to heckle, I need to be able to hear it <laughs> so that that way I can respond and we can keep a scorecard. You know what I mean? Um, Jason did an amazing job last week as he took us through most of chapter one and part of chapter two. And what he reminded us was that even though angels are profound and supernatural and awesome, they are not the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation. Uh, that Jesus is not only the better messenger, but he has a better message because Jesus himself is the message. The writer then continues to compare humans to angels, and he reminds us that as amazing as angels are, they only exist to serve and to minister to and to operate on behalf of human beings. That's us. Uh, angels are neither recipients of the great salvation that we've received, nor are they initiators of that salvation. And that was all done through Jesus Christ. And then he continues to talk about how human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation, that we carry a different glory to the created earth, that when, you, when you're amazed, when you're in Yosemite or when you're in Thailand and you're looking around and you're like, this, this is amazing, this is glorious, that we ourselves carry a greater glory and honor because we are designed to image Him. And so He, he continues with this and he, and, he, and he helps us understand that the glory that we um, sustain is different because only human beings are able to enter an intimate relationship with our Creator. The rest of nature cannot do that. The rest of nature, in a sense, shows something of the greatness of God, but we have the opportunity to show people what God is like. And so I pick up from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, and I'm reading from the ESV. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Uh, sorry, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of whom which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God we might not taste death, sorry, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What we see here is what theologians call the reversal of Adam and Eve, uh, that, that God came in the form of humanity a little lower than the angels, and because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are now restored in relationship to God through Jesus. We will rule the new heavens 
and the new earth. And then there, there is a way in which we are ruling because of the already not yet kingdom. Because as Jesus came and he healed the sick and he brought freedom to those that were bound and he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's a sense in which we continually struggle with this because we have the same questions that the Hebrews did that he answers proactively. He says at present we do not see everything in subjection to him. So the, no, I'm, it, I'm not surprised, I'm not trying to hide something, I'm saying yes, it's true. At present the, everything is not in subjection to him. But because of what he's done, he then continues. In Hebrews 2, verses um, 6 and 7 is a quote from Psalm 8. Remember Jason had that really cool connection with Taylor Swift, right? You got that James Dean daydream. See, everyone knows where that's from. Now, as he said last week, when, when the Hebrews were reading this, they would have realized, oh, this is coming out of Psalm 8. The entirety of Psalm 8 is about the glory of humanity and human beings. And so they would have realized, oh, okay, that makes sense. And now as he continues, he quotes out of Psalm 22. And verse 12 is a quote out of Psalm 22, but the entirety of Psalm 22 is what we call a messianic psalm. And those of you who are familiar with Psalm 22 will know that Psalm 22 verse 1 starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm that Jesus quotes while he's being crucified. And so as he, as he kind of weaves these Old Testament scriptures in, the Hebrews are listening with, with a sense of like anticipation. Oh, this is connecting to what our fathers and grandfathers have taught us. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the, found, the founder, the captain, the pioneer, the source or origin of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is the quote, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, the children that God has given me. How many of you have an older sibling? And how many of you have always tried to get your older sibling's attention? Like, why won't you be friends with me? Why won't you recognize me? Why won't you kind of admit that I exist, you know? And, 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 and what Scripture is telling us now is, is that Jesus is our, our brother, our sibling. I'm an older brother, so I was in the other side. And I was a senior, and my brother was a sophomore. And um, he got into a fight with uh, an Irish kid. Because Irish? <laughs> Irish kids always fight. <laughs> My wife is Irish, just in case. <laughs> Visitors are here, it's like, whoa, there are a whole lot of things happening here. So he got into this fight with, um, with this Irish kid. It's, it's important. His name was Kieran O'Donnell. How much more Irish can you get than that, right? And uh, he got into this fight, and fighting was pretty normal when I was going to school. He got into this fight, and he beat this kid. Uh, the next day, they said that I was going to be fighting. And I was like, what? What is happening? He's like, yeah, his older brother wants to fight you because, because your younger brother beat him. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. How did I get into this? It's like, this is what we do. 
It's the older brother protecting the name of the younger brother. Now, I tried to pretend that I didn't know who this guy was. Um, Soltis is kind of a very unique name, so it's not like I could have said, no, there are plenty of Smiths in the school. No, it was, it was Soltis, and they knew it was me. Uh, and so at the end of the third day, which I tried to kind of get out of, I ended up having to fight his brother. I did not win. <laughs> Generally, when you are the one that picks the fight, you're the one that wins, you know what I mean? But I had to kind of, th that was part of the standard. I, I had to stand in for my brother because something had happened to him and his older brother wanted to protect him. For me as an older brother, I did not want to do that. <laughs> I didn't want to know him. I don't want to, like he had put me in this position. And Jesus is saying that not only am I the core of salvation, not only am I the one in whom the entire universe finds its beginning and fulfillment, but I'm also your brother. And I'm also not ashamed to call you siblings. And so what, what he's communicating here is that, that Jesus' humanity connects us to Jesus in a way that can never connect him to the angels, in a way that could never connect us in any other way other than God coming himself in the form of Jesus. That Jesus is the captain of our salvation, but he's also our brother. That he was tempted, remained firm, and he currently helps us in our temptation. How do we know this? We read from verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that's us, the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which is a fancy word that means to atone for, to wipe away the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." What a joy to know that Jesus is intimately engaged with every aspect of our trial and our suffering and our temptation. And so what the, the writer of Hebrews is communicating both to them at that time and now to us is that there is a man, God-man, that was not seated up in heaven saying, this is how you should live, but that came to earth, pursued us, and lived the way in which we ought to live and showed us what it's like to deal with trial, with suffering, and with temptation. So he's establishing that Jesus was human, which is important for his original audience to understand, that he was made like his brothers. Otherwise, human suffering would have meant nothing. Human temptation would have meant nothing. If Jesus was just a spirit, just kind of some apparition of God, like some kind of hologram, then Jesus' temptation would be meaningless to us because we are the ones that are physically being tempted. We also know exactly when Jesus was tempted because all three of the Gospels detail a time where Jesus specifically walked into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. Now, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, here's the really cool thing. He was ministered to by angels. After that temptation, 
And after Jesus in, in, in his humanity was, was just depleted, it says, and angels came and ministered to him. And then there's the other part that we don't like. And the devil left him until a more opportune time. And so, unfortunately, uh, sometimes what we believe is that, that temptation is like boot camp. Like we're going to boot camp for six months, we train really hard, we resist these temptations, like the 40 days of Jesus, and then it'll be over. But temptation is not clear and focused, concentrated, or temporary. And it doesn't end during a specific difficult time of temptation. Like I said, the, the scripture says that the devil left him until a more opportune time. Why is it important that Jesus went through this? Because I think sometimes, and I know this is true of me, when you don't struggle with something, it's very hard to sympathize with someone who does struggle with something. So it's like, seriously, bro, just do it. It's so easy. Just come on, you know. And what I've said to me often, just because it's easy for you doesn't mean it's easy. And, and then my wife says to me, just be kind. It's easy. <laughs> and I say, just because it's easy for you doesn't mean it's easy, you know. And we all have these different areas where, where we can sympathize with, with the different temptations that people have. We can sympathize with different weaknesses. And, and oftentimes we judge people at the point of our strength, right? <laughs> Can't make a decision to save a life, you know? Look at him. He's like, I'm not talking about you. I mean, if you take that, then that's on you. But I wasn't talking about you. I'm talking about general sense. Look at him. He can just never be kind. He always just has to tell the truth. Jesus is familiar with all of these things because he's not tempted to pick up that bottle and throw it across the room. The problem is also, not only do we judge people on the basis of our strengths, we also, in our weaknesses, if there's an area of temptation that we are weak in, we unfortunately often just say, don't worry about it, I also struggle in that area. Now, sometimes, at best, it's because we don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to appear like we've got everything together, and we want to, we want to extend grace to people, and we want to say, don't worry about it, that's, that's an area of struggle in my life, you'll, you'll get it right. And Jesus doesn't do either of those things. Jesus doesn't look at us and say, just suck it up, it's easy. Look, I did it with the devil, I told him to go away, he went away, you know? But it, what he also says is he, he knows what it's like to be lonely, to be depressed, to be betrayed, to be abandoned. And in neither one of those places is he saying, suck it up, or it's okay. What he is saying is, I am with you in that. He himself has suffered when tempted, and he is able to help, present tense, those who are being tempted. Like I said, we, we, we think of uh, temptation as a boot camp. And let me tell you, if, if you told me, Nick, over the next two days you are going to be tempted to lose your temper, I'd be on my guard, right? How many of you wouldn't? I'd be like, what, carefully looking to see which kind of person do I not want to run into to lose my temper? Which kind of situation do I not want to be in? I certainly don't want to go to the store and buy two things and be in the 15 items or less aisle and have someone with their monthly shopping there. Okay, I know that I'm going to be tempted. Many years ago, my wife said that I had PMS, you know, 
it's pre-message syndrome, you know? So I would be all like stressed and anxious, and then, and then I said, do I still have PMS? She said like, yeah, you do, but now it's post-message syndrome, you know? So now you're just upset about how it went, et cetera. So, and, and those are the kinds of things I now recognize. On Saturday afternoon, I kind of try and organize my life so that, because I, I know the temptation that, that, I, am, that, that I am prone to. On, on Sunday afternoon, I know the temptation I am prone to. So if you said to me, if I said to you guys, I can tell you, Saxon, this week, Wednesday, be careful, something's gonna happen. You'd be like, on it. But it doesn't happen like that, does it? I was driving on my way to church, not here, in South Africa, and there was a, I know, it's a horse and buggy, okay? It is Africa, after all. It's the guy uh, on a horse and buggy coming in my lane in this direction. So I move across a little, and uh, there's very tall grass in Africa, and as we get to the horse and buggy, these dogs just jump straight onto the street. They'd been running next to the cart. I didn't see them. They'd run straight into the street. I had to veer across the street, um, and I laid on my horn in a very polite way. No, I did. I was like, pop up, you know what I mean? I, I did the polite thing. I didn't like, lay on it. Anyway, the guy had a, a whip from the buggy, and he whipped the front of my car, like whoosh. So I don't know what happened. I think I literally heard something break in my brain. And I turned the car around. You guys know what a handbrake turn is? I turned the car around. I come back. I park in front of him, I jump onto the cart, and I grab him by the collar. And then Karen is outside of the car, yelling at me, can you see what you're doing? <laughs> and I look around, when, when people say the red haze, I mean, I literally experienced that a moment. I, as I plonked him down on the seat, next to him is his daughter. Like, I don't know, she was like 10, 11, or 12, I, I can't remember. I just plonk him down, I get back, I get into the car, and I go to church. <laughs> I had to preach that Sunday. I'm pretty sure it was awful. But it was unexpected, and in that moment, if you'd said to me, as I woke up that morning, Nick, be careful, you're gonna be tempted to lose your temper, I would have had my wits about me. That's not how it happens. And so Jesus, in the, in the way in which he's tempted, gives us an ability to engage with him and with ourselves in areas of temptation. I think the first area that we need to come to terms with is there is an uncomfortable, inescapable reality that anyone who wants to follow Jesus will experience suffering, trials, and temptation. Why? Because Jesus did. And why is that good for us? Because ultimately, in that moment, what I realized is everything that I knew about anger, about temper, about self-control was here, and I really needed Jesus to bring that here. So that when I was squeezed by pressure, what came out is not my old man, but the new man that Jesus is reforming. Now, what we understand is, is three things this morning. Number one, we will be tempted to give in to our sensual desires. Sensual desires are not sexual desires. Sexual desires are part of sensual desires. Sensuality basically means things of the flesh. And I gave in to a sensual desire right there. My desire for justice according to the Gospel of Nick took over in that moment. I wanted justice, what had happened was wrong, and I was gonna make it better. 
And I was going to feel better because that's what I was going to produce, was this sense of justice. In Luke 4, verse 3 to 4, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, and the devil comes and says to him, Since you are God's son, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus replied, It is written, People will not live only on bread. This is an example of the devil tempting us to meet a legitimate desire in illegitimate ways. It's not a sin to be hungry. Certainly not when you've been fasting for 40 days. It's not a sin to desire sexual intimacy. Whether you're married, whether you're single, whatever your attraction is, that, that, that is not a sin. Ultimately, what is a sin is giving in to your sensual desire and fulfilling that in a way that is not in line with God's word. It's not a sin to desire a good meal. It's not a sin to desire to want to be in a place of beauty. It's not a sin to desire a nice home. It's not a sin to desire that things are ordered correctly. That's not a sin. It's not a sin to be angry or fearful or anxious. The challenge is when the devil tempts us and partners with our flesh and we turn those things into the focus of our lives, that's when it becomes sinful. When our anger, fear, or anxiety doesn't become a capacity that we can invite the Spirit of God in to reveal what is happening to us, but it becomes part of our nature and who we are, that is the temptation. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say that he is, when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But listen to the procedure here. But each person is tempted when he is lured, when he is enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and then sin brings forth death. The enemy tempts you by telling you things like, you deserve this, you're worth it, you've worked hard. What has God done for you lately? Those are the whispers that the enemy whispers to you. Just like he said to Jesus, since you're God's son, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. We are lonely, frustrated, we're tired and hungry, and we settle for what we know is not bread. We look at the rocks on the ground, and we put them in our mouths, and we start chewing them, and we break our teeth, and we blame God. Sooner or later, we forget what bread tastes like, what it smells like, because the enemy has convinced us that these stones are gonna satisfy. And not only do we end up with broken teeth, but we end up looking at God saying, you did this. We're angrier at God because we blame him because he's either withholding or what we thought was gonna satisfy. The stones that the devil told us are gonna satisfy us are the ones that brought us pain. You will be tempted to meet your desires your natural desires, your God-given desires in a disordered way. So I want to ask you this morning, to ask the Spirit of God, are there areas in my life where I'm trying to turn stones into bread? Where I'm looking at this, saying, God, I'm hungry, I'm lonely, I'm frustrated. And this looks good to me right now. Actually, this feels like you could be in this. And we're tempted to do that. 
The second thing we can see by the way in which Jesus modeled his humanity by being tempted by the evil one in the desert is that we will be tempted to pursue praise and significance. Luke 4 verse 6, the devil then says to him, I will give you this whole domain and all the glory of all the kingdoms that has been entrusted to me and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answers and says, it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus in that moment is tempted to receive glory without sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews in verse nine says this, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death. And the devil is saying, I can give you glory and honor without suffering and death. All you have to do is bow to me. All you have to do is bow to the world system. All you have to do is admit that I am in charge and then I can give you what I want and then you will receive glory and honor. The Hebrews in that stage were tempted to revert back to receiving glory and honor from men. There was a sense in which um, they were being challenged both by their family and by the environment in which they were in. If you're actually really a follower of Yahweh, then all of these things about by grace alone, by faith alone, no. You've got to do all of the things that our Israelite fathers were doing. That's how you receive glory and honor. It's not wrong to want a life of purpose. It's not wrong to want a life of significance. The challenge is how we define a life of purpose and significance. Maybe we define it as status. Maybe we define it as likes on TikTok. Maybe we define it as money. A nice house. Not just a college degree, but which college I got my degree from. Maybe that's how we define it. Maybe we define it by where I am in the context of my career compared to the rest of the people, my rest, the rest of my peers. Dallas Willard, here we go for you, Sean. Sean's a fanboy of Dallas Willard. Dallas said this, unlike egotism, the drive to significance is a simple extension of the creative impulse of God that gave us being. We were built to count as water is made to run downhill. This is natural for us. We are placed in a specific context to count in ways that no one else does. That is our destiny. Our hunger for significance is a signal of who we are and why we are here. And it is also the basis of humanity's enduring response to Jesus. I don't know why there's the sense of like, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you can't dream big dreams, you can't desire big things. That is not what we're saying. That's not what scripture is saying. We were designed to rule. That was our job in the garden. We were designed to bring order out of chaos. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews says that we will rule again. That's why we were designed. That's why Jesus came to rescue us from sin, Satan, and death, so we could rule in the new heavens and the new earth. We are built to rule. The issue is whose kingdom are we building? The issue is what, kind of, what does significance and power look like? And we can see it in the life of Jesus. It looks completely different to what we think significance and power and impact looks like. Are you exercising authority on behalf of others for the glory of God? Or is it for your own satisfaction and desires? 
if glory is coming to you, and the means by which you are achieving what you're achieving are the same means that the world operates in, and the same things that the world applauds, then perhaps we have succumbed to this temptation. Perhaps we've said, yes, I want glory, I want honor, without suffering, without pain, I will bow to the way the world does things. We will be tempted to pursue significance and meaning apart from Jesus. We will be tempted to bow down to the systems of this world. And maybe this morning, we can ask ourselves the question, where are we pursuing glory for ourselves according to the pattern of this world that doesn't bring glory to Jesus? Lastly, we will be tempted to make God our servant. We'll be tempted to make him our servant. We continue in Luke. The devil says, if, in other words, if apparently, since you are God's son, throw yourself down from here, for it's written that he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and that they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus answered, it has been said, do not test the Lord your God. I don't know how many of you have been in children's ministry. This looks like, this looks like people shooting at each other with scripture, right? This is what God says. This is what God says. This is, this is not that. And, and this is where we as Christians get in trouble because the, the devil changes his strategy now and actually says, okay, I'm going to use a form of religion without true power and I'm going to use a scripture out of context so that I can appeal to your base needs and desires. And you look at me like, okay, Nick, what are the chances of the devil taking me you know, to the top of some building and saying, jump off and God will protect you? Not very high. Those chances are not very high. I know, many of you are like, I was wondering about that, you know? <laughs> but I can tell you what is likely to happen. I can tell you that you're likely to fall into the temptation of well, I want to do this and God didn't close the door. Or I didn't hear a no. Or I think God would want me to have that. Or I feel led to. None of those things have, it is written, right? You can say to me, Nick, look, you can take scriptures out of context and actually offer yourself a variety of things. But one of the things we need to understand, and this is another reason why we need to study the Bible, is there is an arc of scripture, not just these scattered kind of shots. And that is that arc that Jesus replies to the devil with this, do not test the Lord your God. Why? Because he'll get angry and he's capricious? No, because God knows what is better for you. I don't need to do this to test God's kindness. When we do use Scripture, we tend to abuse it rather than submit to Scripture. How many of you guys have heard this? God will give you the desires of your heart. You heard that Scripture? Do you know what the literal sentence before that Scripture is? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's a bait and switch right there. Do you know why? Because if I delight myself in the Lord, you know what happens to my desires? They become His desires. That's a bait and switch right there. This is not saying, if you're a Christian, whatever you want, God will give you. This is saying, if you're a Christian, 
then your desires are going to align with God's desires. And of course, He will give them to you because they are His desires. That's what it means to submit to the fullness of Scripture. We use a form of religion to justify our decisions, believing God exists to make our desires come true or that he is legally and automatically bound to fix situations that I get myself into. That's what we believe. We may not say that, but that's how we live. We may not say to someone, Joey, do whatever you want. Because in reality, God is gracious and God is kind and he will cover over any mistake. Is anything of what I said, the second part of untrue? It is not true. I mean, sorry, <laughs> it is true. God is gracious and kind. And whatever you do, God will rush to you with grace and mercy. But that's not a reason to step out of his plan and purpose and test that. And actually say, God, I hear that you're kind. I hear that you're forgiving. I hear that you're healing and restoring. And I'm going to test that by doing things that I know are going to hurt me so that I can prove that you're healing and restoring. That doesn't sound like delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. We co-opt God to be the fulfiller of our desires, but we haven't brought that desire to God and said, test this desire, God. Purify this desire. Remember, as I said in, in the first one, sometimes these are natural human desires. Nick, this is natural for you to feel this way, but this is dangerous for you to be on this path. Yes, I know you've been single for a long time. I know that you've sacrificed. I know that you want someone to share your life with. But this path that you're on is dangerous for you. The danger of this is that as we try and are tempted to reshape God into our image, is that we succeed in reshaping God into our image. And he becomes our servant. And he becomes our servant, and then this is what happens. When he doesn't serve us the way that we expect to be served, he then changes. And he becomes this mean, capricious God who is not willing to provide for us or not able to protect us. And that's all because we have decided to reshape God rather than come to him and saying, show me what you're like. Are we molding God into our servant instead of submitting to his will? That's a question we should be asking. What do we do? I think the first thing that we need to do is confess it. Confess it to God and to others. I am being tempted in this area. This is a major temptation of mine. My major, one of, one of my major temptations is scorched earth policy if you double cross me. Not turn the other cheek. That is a major temptation of mine. And when I'm in a situation like that, and someone whips my car with a whip. What the heck? I mean, something snaps in my mind. I'm saying, God, in the name of Jesus, I'm being tempted right now. I want justice my way. And I know I can get it. I don't want to just drive off allowing him to think that he's won. What is your temptation? 
confess to God, to confess. denial doesn't help. I'm not tempted by this, or pretending like we're not tempted doesn't help, because it doesn't open the door for the Spirit of God to come and empower us, for us to actually be able to receive Jesus' help. I am tempted by this. Share that with your loved one. Share that with your life group leader. Share that in the context so people can walk with you in that. God, I'm tempted. Expose in me why this is such a temptation. Many of us don't ask that deeper question. Many of us might be tempted sexually or might be tempted to drink more or might be tempted to, to react in ways that I've detailed here, but we aren't, we're just saying, God, help me not to do that. Yeah, but God, why? Why am, I, why am I like this? What is buried deep here that just popped out like that without me even thinking about it? And if we deny the fact that we're tempted, we also deny the fact that the Spirit of God can search deeply into our being and expose this. You know, Jesus didn't have something that we currently have. In the wilderness, he was alone. No one was there. After he was tempted, the angels came to minister to him. In another place of intense temptation, he was in the garden. He wanted people to be with him. He said to his disciples, come with me, because I'm in deep despair. Pray with me. And his disciples were asleep. And in that time of loneliness, Jesus was tempted, both in the wilderness and in the garden. We have people around us. We have people around us that can pray with us. Now, I, I cannot promise that they won't fall asleep. I, I can't. Either literally or spiritually, I can't promise that. But what I can say is that let's model what Jesus learned from the wilderness. Man, in the wilderness I was alone. I'm in the garden. I'm going to ask my friends to come with me and stand with me in that temptation. They didn't. But the reality is, is that Jesus found strength in his Father. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. It's the reality, the searching in his soul. God, I don't want to do this. Not my will, but yours be done. Lastly, the thing we can do is after we've confessed it, we need to restrain and replace. And I'm going to talk about one person who's a figment of a Greek's imagination, Ulysses, and another person who's actually a real person, although he's dead, is Thomas Chalmers. Okay? For many of you will know Ulysses, um, and one of the things that happened with Ulysses is that he was on a ship, and they were coming near a place where there were sirens or mermaids, and so he told his crew, I want you to tie me to the mast, and I don't want you to let me go, even if I say let me go, because I know the temptation of these sirens. And so they restrained him to the mast, they put earwax in their own ears, Again, my question is, why couldn't he have done that? But then I guess we wouldn't have a story, you know. But they tie him to the mast, and after the danger is over, then they untie him. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of that story where two of the guys get up because he's struggling so much and actually restrain him even tighter because he wanted to respond to the siren song. So there's the sense of when, when I'm being tempted, there is a sense of restraint, is I need my friends to restrain me from acting in this specific way. But then there is also what I call replacement. And Thomas Chalmers, who's not a myth, says this. 
But what cannot be destroyed, he's talking about sin, may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another, and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. What he's saying there is the root power of sin is severed by the power of a superior pleasure. The root power of sin is severed by the power of a superior pleasure. It's broken. The strong attraction is broken because I have a more compelling joy. And I want to say this. If you're in danger of temptation and you need to be able to resist, then restrain yourself. Then stop yourself from doing that. The Bible talks about flee, reject, put off. It talks about these things. But ultimately, that is the fruit of what is happening. If we want to no longer be tempted by this, we've got to drill down to the root, and then we need to replace that with a vision of godliness and a vision of joy and a compelling relationship with Jesus. Why? Because we are made to worship. And if we don't replace that, we're just going to find something else to worship. Restraint will only protect you temporarily. Restraint is an immature way of dealing with things. However, I, in my experience, have found that it is almost impossible to replace one affection for another without restraint having taken place first. Without stopping that pattern of sin, even if you, there's a sense in which, like, I need to stop this, I need help, I need ex, uh, external help. Many guys will, will know this, that even in terms of pornography, if you've spoken to your wife or you've spoken to your mentor, you've blocked your computer, you've blocked your phone, you've blocked all those kinds of things, you do that, great. That is being restrained, right? The deeper thing is, God, I don't want this to be an affection. I want to follow you, and I know that following this path is going to lead to destruction for me and for my family. Please replace that, replace that affection. It's often a two-step process. Band, you can come up. What are we replacing this with? We see Jesus crowned with glory and with grace. That's what we're replacing it with. We see Jesus who died in our place. That's what we're replacing it with. We're replacing it with the writer of Hebrews says this. He is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high. We're replacing it with Jesus Christ, our Savior, who willingly was brutalized, tortured, and died so that we could be set free from sin was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father so that he can rescue us from the penalty and the power of sin. We see Jesus who loves us in a way that no other human being will ever have the capacity to love us. And we see Jesus made like a man, being able to walk with us knowing what it's like to be tempted and tried. Our hope is that even though we are prone to temptation, because Adam gave way to it in the garden, our hope is that Jesus overcame 
his temptation in the wilderness in the garden. Because a growing affection to Jesus doesn't mean that we strive to turn stones into bread. Our growing affection to Jesus means that we eat the bread of life, that we eat of him, that we place ourselves in his presence. We say, God, feed me. Feed me by your spirit. Feed me by your word. Feed me. That he helps us to resist the the power of prominence and status in this world because scripture tells us that we have all authority in Jesus Christ and we are seated with him in heavenly places and when he returns we will rule with him we have power and prominence and that we can rest in the joy of knowing that we cannot fashion this God because he's God and he refuses to be fashioned by us We know that we can trust in him because even though the things that we may be experiencing are not good, those temptations, those sufferings, those trials, we know that he is good. And we know this because he is a God who weeps. We know this because he's a God that bleeds. We know this because he's a God that reached for us. We know this because he's our king, our son of suffering. God, we thank you that you sent your son to live a life um, like we live, and he went through all the temptations, all the different temptations that Nick talked about, and he came out of that sin-free. And I, I just thank you that you sent him to sacrifice his body so that we can also live in that freedom. So let's take um, the bread and eat. God, I thank you for the blood that Jesus spilt to cover us so that we could be seen um, as clean in your eyes. Let's take, take the cup. So I'd like to continue to respond. Um, if anyone feels like they're in that place where they're in the wilderness and they're walking through temptation alone, um, please come and receive prayer over here with some of our trusted leaders and just be reminded that you have access to Jesus who has been through that temptation and is sin-free and you have community here um, to walk alongside you in that. I feel like even as we've talked about temptation and how Jesus helps us to remain firm, there might be people here that are saying, Nick, I'm way beyond temptation. I'm stuck in patterns that I, I want to be free from. Not only is the blood of Jesus able to help you stand firm, the blood of Jesus is able to help you come to freedom as you repent and say, Jesus, I need you. Set me free. I would love to be able to pray for anyone that is feeling a time of temptation or even those that are like, man, that temptation has gone past. I'm in it right now. There's freedom because of his blood. It's freedom because of his broken body. Thank you, Mercy Commons, for being attentive to the work of God and the voice of the Spirit. Let's go out there and be the church.
Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.